Bienvenidos a Crónicas de la Raza. Welcome to La Raza Chronicles. On today's program, we bring you an update from Brazil. You, we will talk about the COVID pandemic and how it's being dealt with along with other breaking news. We'll also bring you an in-depth interview on ethnic studies and what's happening now at a state and local level. And last but definitely not least, we're going to bring you some great new music, local musica, some artists we love, and some music that you don't get to hear anywhere else. So, por favor, no se vayan and enjoy tonight's program. You're listening to Crónicas de la Raza. You're listening to La Raza Chronicles, Crónicas de la Raza, and today we're very lucky to have one of our former correspondents from Brazil. We used to be lucky to have very regular updates from Joe Antonio Rodriguez. He is a longtime journalist in Brazil based in Sao Paulo. He has been covering a big, huge range of issues, and he has his own outlet, a platform that is very exciting. But we're very lucky to have him on our show today to be able to give us an update on what is happening on the ground. First of all, Diogo, thank you so much for making the time out of your schedule to speak with us. It's a pleasure to speak to you, Julieta. So, Diogo, we're going to start off. A lot of people have heard, okay, Bolsonaro, the current government, similar to Trump. There was a lot of comparison. Trump and there's people would say the U.S. government and Brazil, very similar in terms of maybe some corruption, maybe some slowness in dealing with the pandemic. I know that it's very hard to summarize. As a journalist, what stands out to you if, as some way to kind of have us understand the impact that this government has had on people on a daily basis? Well, the comparisons to the Trump government are not unfair because Jair Bolsonaro, our president, has declared many times that he was a fan of Trump and many of his policies and the way he, his style in politics are, you know, very similar to what Trump used to do. And so that, that's not an unfair comparison. But at the same time, of course, we're, we're two different countries and we have different impacts on, on our, you know, we suffer different impacts from our government's actions. But uh, in a way, I mean, in a general, generally speaking, Bolsonaro is a, a far right politician who is very connected to uh, neoliberal economic elites here in Brazil. And he was elected to undo the, all the, the policies that the previous Workers' Party governments did in Brazil. And he was elected on a platform, on an anti-corruption platform that didn't have much substance. That's not my opinion. That's, you know, many analysis of his uh, program when he was running for president showed that didn't have many clear proposals. And his main, I guess, claim to fame was that he was there. He was opposed to Luis Inácio Lula da Silva and the Workers' Party. So that's what Bolsonaro has been doing, trying to undo the legacies, the legacy of, of the Workers' Party government, trying to make uh, labor laws more flexible and also something that you and the U.S. might have heard about, you know, try to explore the Amazon, explore it economically and, you know, just at the cost of devastating the environment. So in a, in a nutshell, just, you know, just to, to start us off with, with this description, that's what Bolsonaro is about. That's the voice of Joe Antonio Rodriguez. He's speaking to us from Brazil. He's a journalist and he has been covering this administration from the beginning. I want to apologize, folks, they can maybe hear some construction. This is the life we lead now that we have COVID and I can't be in our radio studios. 
closet is not the insulation I need. But so I thank you so much for laying the groundwork in terms of people understanding some of these overall policies. Can you speak to us how Bolsonaro has been handling the COVID-19 public health crisis as we know Brazil is one of the countries that is hardest hit? Yes, well, his government from the beginning has decided not to deal with it. I mean, not to say at all, but uh, well, it's, it's a very it's a very hands off approach. And uh, there was never a federal strategy for dealing with the crisis in terms of uh, preventive measures. And even even economically, there was no no plan at all. The only thing they did, the only thing the government did was hand out a $110 stimulus check to people who were, you know, economically vulnerable. And that stopped in December. And there is no perspective of, of this stimulus check uh, being given out again. So, so to give an example, there was there, there isn't still there isn't a federal plan for vaccination, just so you understand. The government has not negotiated with the, the pharma companies for the production of the vaccines in Brazil, not the, not, not the federal government. And there was never, never a national plan for lockdowns or for preventive measures for the distribution of masks, uh, hand sanitizer, anything like that. Uh, quite the contrary. Bolsonaro was always denying the gravity of the pandemic. In the beginning, he said it was just like a common flu. Uh, he even used some sexist words to, the, to qualify people who were afraid of the pandemic, of the virus. And he, all like Trump, he also promoted the use of unverified treatments such as hydroxychloroquine to, you know, to combat the virus. He calls it the precocious treatment, but of course we know there is no scientific claims to that. And but he he was up until next week he was still defending hydroxychloroquine. You know, his his approach to, to this whole thing was was always about the economy. He always wanted the economy to go on. He was against any kind of lockdown, any kind of restriction. He he said, uh, along with some of the ideological uh, uh, people in his government, he tried to suggest that China had spread the virus on purpose, and some kind of you know conspiracy theory that we don't know exactly what what it is. That's what Bolsonaro has been doing, and uh, economy is his, his first priority. I gotta say that he only started talking about vaccines when it was it became very clear that vaccination is the only way out of this, even economically. So after, you know, one of his political rivals, Governor João Doria, who is the governor of Sao Paulo, when he, Governor Doria started, uh, announced that Sao Paulo would, had the vaccines because Sao Paulo had a, an agreement with the Chinese government and was going to start vaccinating people in January 25th. Then the, the federal government woke up and started talking about vaccines and even uh, even claimed part of the vaccines that Sao Paulo is producing for a federal vaccination plan. But only after Doria, the governor, announced his own plan, his own uh, structure for producing vaccines here in the state of Sao Paulo, that the federal government did anything. Let me get this straight, that specifically the local government in Sao Paulo had procured and were planning on distributing to its residents that has now been taken up by the state, is that right, by the federal government? Yes, part of it, but that's that's uh, that's legal. That's not. Uh, I mean, the government can't do that because it's a national crisis, and the federal the federal government is the one that must coordinate some efforts like the vaccination effort. But of course, Apollo has its own share of doses that you know that that are being already distributed. Uh, but only but only because uh, the, the the federal government only has a share, only has anything in its hands 
because the Sao Paulo government produced it. The, there is a federal foundation called Fiocruz, uh, Fundação Oswaldo Cruz, that it's it's a research institute. They are uh, they, they are doing the national version of the Oxford vaccine, the AstraZeneca vaccine, but they're not dependent on the federal government. They're independent from it, but they're still researching it. And we're going to have that vaccine maybe in March, but it's nothing on, I mean, you can say it's something that the federal government did because Fiocruz operates independently. Thank you so much. That's the voice of Joe Antonio Rodriguez. He is speaking to us from Brazil. He's a longtime journalist. So you've given us a sense of what is happening on larger scale level. And can you tell us any stories you've heard or people you've spoken to that can help highlight the personal human impact that this you know, huge deficit in terms of dealing with this health crisis, the huge issues that come about with Bolsonaro's terrible management of this crisis. Can you tell us about the impact that you've heard or seen either economically or personally or any way, any, any stories that you can tell us to bring this home? Well, personally, I got to say I'm very privileged. I, I've been able to work from home. My family's protected. Everybody's working from home. I have an elderly mother who is, you know, who's sheltering in place and everything is fine. But I think the symbol of, of this crisis that we're living is, is Manaus, the capital of the state of Amazonas, which uh, I, I guess some people, some of your listeners might have seen something on CNN or any other channels about the crisis that they, they're going through there. They, they like oxygen for people who are, you know, in the, in the intensive care units there because there are so many cases. There is there, they, they, the cases blew up in the beginning of the year and there is there aren't enough uh, ICU units for everyone. There aren't enough oxygen tanks for everyone. So they're having to, to send out people to other states in order for them to be treated and for, in order for them to survive. Manaus is, is a state in which uh, the lockdown was ruled out by the government, the local governments. And I got to say that the president supported that because, you know, him and, and, and his far right allies, like I said before, they wanted the economy just to go on and they, they were against any kind of lockdown. And Manaus was one of the places that didn't have any kind of restrictive measures especially in the, in, the, uh, in the end of last year. So this is the scenery we're, see, we're seeing now in Manaus, people struggling to get oxygen tanks. We had to import some from Venezuela in order to, to you know, supply them to, for the patients who need it. And, and it's, it's a real humanitarian crisis there. I mean, people are suffering, people are dying. It's a record number of deaths in Manaus uh, ever since the pandemic started. And the economy, of course, is going to suffer from that because now the state is going to have is going through a very stern lockdown because there is no other way they can go through this. And so right now, Giovo, we are in a place where people are wondering: Is there a possible change in terms of different relationship? We have a different administration here in the United States. How do you see this um, changing the dynamics between Brazil and the United States? The now Biden, you know, in office. Well, I guess I think that the, the, the election in the U.S. was very important, even as a symbol for the Bolsonaro government, because he, he tried to use his proximity, his, his his alleged proximity to Trump as political leverage to try to say that Brazil was, you know, was side by side with the U.S. and had access to, you know, to great opportunities internationally. We know that that isn't true, exactly true, but it was something that he could, you know, claim now that uh, the Biden government is, is uh, has been sworn in and is, is you know is working, 
uh, we can say that Bolsonaro loses a lot of his political strength, especially internationally, because now he has he's basically isolated, even in Latin America, even because even even right wing governments in Latin America, such as the Uruguayan government, don't want to have anything to do with him because it's too extreme. Like I said, he's a pandemic denier and he, he can't be trusted with, you know, important issues like international uh, exchange because he is very ideological. He's always bickering with China. And that's something that I forgot to mention that almost cost us, you know, supply medical supplies to produce vaccines because his foreign minister has been accusing China of spreading the virus. And, you know, China has been accusing China of a international conspiracy uh, to dominate the world. And we almost we almost didn't have access to those important supplies that we needed for the vaccines. So um, I guess that, uh, uh, that now that there's going to be a lot of more pressure for Bolsonaro, especially concerning the Amazon, the Biden government has already said that it will not tolerate the, the Brazilian policy of just, you know, exploring everything and not giving the right amount of attention to preservation and to the laws that are already in place. And I think that it, this is very bad news for, for the current president because he's losing one of his, uh, one of the symbols of his presidency, which is when he was elected, we, there was this notion that there was a international movement on the right that was taking over the world and Brazil was part of that. And now that Trump is gone, that notion is, 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 is weaker now and Bolsonaro is much more isolated than he was uh, when he was elected. That's the voice of Joe Antonio Rodriguez. He is reporting from Brazil. He has been following these stories along with many others. Joe, can you please tell us about your project? Your project is a beautiful way for people to hear stories and connect to things that they otherwise would not be able to really find out more. It, we have a lot of listeners that perhaps either speak Portuguese or want to practice their Portuguese and would love to get news from a reputable source that isn't filtered through all these different corporate lenses. Can you tell us about Me Explica? Sure. Uh, Me Explica is an explanatory news project that I started in 2013 as an independent project, which it still is. And the idea is to, you know, give context in a very accessible language so people understand what's going on in the news. And, and also at the same time, they learn a little bit about Brazilian government or international international exchange or any other subject that we cover on the website. And uh, and I invite everyone to visit it. It's mexplica.com. And we're also on Instagram and Facebook and Twitter. You know, and feel, feel free to send messages, questions. I'm always there to, to answer and to talk to people. On Instagram, um, uh, the handle is site. And that's the same on Twitter and on Facebook. You can just search for Me Explica, two different words, M-E Explica, like in Spanish. MeExplica.com is the website. Giovo, so right now we know Bolsonaro's in power. Can you give us a sense of where we're at in the election cycle? And we know that the House of Representatives, there are different elections that, are coming, that have happened or coming up. So put us in context. Where are we at in terms of uh, elections? Bolsonaro is starting starting his third year in office. Next year will be his last one of, of this term. And we had municipal elections last year, and none of his candidates were able to, to be elected to any major capitals in Brazil. So that's a sign that he doesn't have a, a lot of political leverage right now. And I guess 
the economic situation of Brazil is one of the reasons, but also because with all the, his anti-corruption uh, discourse, with all the things that he said that he was going to do with the country, clean it out of corruption, his sons have been accused of corruption. He is being investigated for corruption. So uh, I think that people are starting to notice that uh, Bolsonaro isn't really delivering what he promised in the campaign. And of course, the pandemic has a lot to do with this, with this negative view of his government. Also, his popularity, his ratings have been dropping ever since the the stimulus checks. His popularity has been dropping ever since uh, the government stopped giving out the stimulus checks. So that's something very important to, to keep in mind because Brazil has a lot of poor people that depend on complementary income to survive. And if the government for, fulfills the, the promises of you know, creating a more liberal state, spending and spends less with, you know, social programs, I guess uh, Bolsonaro is going to lose a lot of electors. So and we're going to have another presidential election in 2022. Bolsonaro has won a very big uh, victory, at least in terms of parliament. His candidates, both of them won the speaker uh, uh, election, both for the House of Representatives and for the Senate. That gives them a lot of leverage because these presidents, so we, we call them here in Brazil, they can set the agenda, the political agenda, what's going to be voted, what's not going to be voted. But some analysts are saying that this victory is not going to last long because he had to, to make a very broad coalition in both houses of parliament in order to win. And that he's going to be held ransom be, uh, by these factions in order to you know deliver some of the things that he wants to deliver, uh, at least in terms of projects that depend on the parliament. So uh, Bolsonaro is in a, in a very tight spot right now. You can't really say that he's losing politically. I mean, he, he, he has been suffering a lot. There's still a long way until 2022, but it's definitely not the, the victory that people thought that he was going to have already at this point. Because, you know, like I said, he, he has not been able to, to clearly deliver the things that he promised during his campaign but also because he has many contradictions himself as a person and as a politician. That's the voice of Joe Antonio Rodriguez. Thank you so much for breaking down this current political moment, giving us context around how uh, the Bolsonaro administration government is dealing with the COVID-19 crisis, which is deeply affecting Brazil as well as most of the world. So, Diogo, thank you so much for making time out of your schedule. I'm so grateful for, for you uh, and your reporting and your eye to these crucial moments. And we deeply appreciate your energy and time to give us a more complete story. So, again, when, if people want to find Me Explica, how do they do it? They can go to meexplica.com and find me on Instagram as site. That's the handle. And, and on the same on Twitter and Facebook. Thank you so much again, Jova. We look forward to hearing from you in the future. Thank you for having me back.
We're now going to bring you some wonderful local music, some música que nos encanta, que queremos compartir con ustedes. This music is produced by the Bay's own Juan Manuel Caipo. We love him on the drums and we love him as a producer. So here you're going to get some releases that not everyone's getting to hear. So first off, we're going to start off with Caipo's band um, with our love Dusa clips as well and that is Bang Data and you'll hear the song Unchain My Heart. Next we're going to mix it up with some cumbia. We're going to hear from the Bay Area via Latin America group Pasto Seco. They are super fun cumbia group that and this track is called La Cumbia del Maestre. And last but definitely not least we're going to hear Chica D and this song is called Tocame. So these are all songs that you can check out more online. You can definitely support these local musicians. And we want to do whatever we can to keep music going and bring new music to your life. So disfruten y por favor siguen apoyando los músicos. Keep supporting musicians. Here we go. We're going to start off with Bang Dada's Unchain My Heart. Unchain my heart. Unchain my heart Cause you don't care about me You got me sold like a pillowcase But you let my love go away So unchain my heart Oh please be set me free I want it bad to be the one But now I want it to be done And I don't ever look back When I turn around and run I say you gotta let me go You be as cold as the snow I wanna grow but you don't give a damn The love dies slow Unchain me, this game be too much I'm crazy You play me, slay me Begging you unchain me You cage me and raise me Please let go, save me I'm under your spell Like a man in a trance But I know that
Esta es la historia del amigo de un amigo Un hombre sabio que le gusta parrandear Un caballero con todita la muchacha Si no cumbiaba lo encontrabas en el lado Un cierto sane regresando del Dolores El gran maestro se puso a filosofar Metiendo turbo por visión y 24 En su teoría sí se puso a Hace la corta así La historia del amigo de un amigo Un hombre sabio que le gusta parrandear Un caballero con toditas las muchachas Si no cumbiaba lo encontrabas en el bar Un cierto sande regresando de dolores El gran maestro se puso a filosofar Metiendo turba por misión y 24 En sus teorías él se puso a meditar Y se la corta así En esa época donde quemaban a Galileo, donde quemaban a Copérnico, donde todos vivían en la ignorancia, po. Problema tuyo nomás, po. Yo estaba sola esperando tu llamada. Tú andabas afuera, en camino te encontraba. Mientras tú llegas, me fumo un pucho y me tomo un ron. Llego tu texto, yo toda emocionada Voy a la ducha para salir volada Me pongo falda, blusa apretada y uso tacón No sabe cómo pienso En todo lo que va a pasar Mi mente es un exceso Hay que no puedo controlar No sabe cómo pienso En todo lo que va a pasar Mi mente es un exceso
Parker, the sky's clear, we found an empty parking Let's do the countdown, 3, 2, 1 You can undress me now No sabe como pienso En todo lo que va a pasar Mi mente es un exceso Ay que no puedo controlar No sabe como pienso listening to La Raza Chronicles, Cronicas de la Raza, and today we're talking about something super foundational, super essential, which is ethnic studies. I personally was lucky enough to have ethnic studies in high school. I later became a Latin American Latino studies major at UC Santa Cruz. It shaped my whole trajectory. It shaped my whole life to help me understand myself, my people, my world. And we are very lucky to have on the line with us Dr. Teresa Montaño, she's a professor of Chicana Chicano Studies at California State University, Northridge. She's also been a fierce advocate for ethnic studies. And this is not a short-term commitment. This has been a long-haul commitment. So, Teresa, could we take a step back? Could you walk us through a little bit about the struggle and the fight that has existed over the years to try to get ethnic studies? And for, you know, for people who don't really know what that looks like and feels like, you know, tell us a little bit about specifically Chicano Studies. I, like you, was on the front lines of, of fighting for Chicano studies as a high school student. So it's been over a 50-year battle of ethnic studies, in particular Chicano studies. We um, have our foundations in the Plan de Santa Barbara, which was drafted by um, several folks who actually became Chicano studies faculty, um, Rene Nunez, others who wrote the Plan de Santa Barbara. Um, students from tens of thousands walked out of East LA high schools demanding that the history books begin to um, reflect their um, their stories of uh, resistance and of resilience and and to basically reconstruct what we had been fed as American history. And so that battle uh, is currently still going on some 50 years later. We're, we're very used to continuing the fight for ethnic studies. But this year, we thought we were a bit closer to actually securing ethnic studies model curriculum 
for K-12 schools. We still don't have the legislation that will be um, coming back in the form of the Medina AB 101, but we're on the front lines of battling for um, a model curriculum that could uh, be used by districts to develop ethnic studies courses. 50 years is a lot to tell in a minute, but I think like, like you and like me, for some people, the fight for ethnic studies is looked like, like, oh, we're asking for a class, big deal. We're asking for uh, fidelity in, in the curriculum. We're asking for our voice and self-determination in ethnic studies. So what's the big deal? Well, for us, it is a big deal. This is a 50-year battle. And before that, our predecessors and our antepasados, they fought against an educational system that lied to us about our history and refused to tell us who we were. So this is more than just a course, it's our life. That's the voice of Teresa Montaño. She is a professor of ethnic studies, specifically Chicana Chicano studies in Cal State Northridge. And she's talking to us about this long battle that she's been fighting. So Dr. Teresa Montaño, not everyone has had the opportunity to take these kinds of courses. And like you said, they may think, oh, it's a history class, okay, big deal, what impact could that truly have? So when you imagine this model curriculum, walk us through what could it feel like and what impact could it have on young people today in California? We talk about ethnic studies being an epistemology, a content, and a pedagogy, right? It is a way of being. So for a people who for 500 plus years have been, been denied knowledge of their history, continue to face contemporary struggles against racism, are reconstructing their culture and their knowledge through personal stories passed down by generations. For us, ethnic studies is real. Now multiply that, not just for Chicanos, but for Palestinians, for African Americans, for Filipino, for American Indian and indigenous people in this state, in this country. And then imagine all of us coming together for the very first time after being chosen out of hundreds of applications to sit with the California State Department of Education and to construct a model curriculum that we knew was going to be an awakening for our students in high school, where they would be able to say, I learned the truth in ninth grade, as opposed to, I learned the truth when I took my first Chicano Studies course, right? Well, when we walked in, we were a bit skeptical because we had no idea who the state of California is. You're always suspicious when the state, you know, um, blesses your work. But these were phenomenal individuals. There were folks who really got ethnic studies. We, we came together and we wrote, we started, because we never finished, we asked for more time to finish, a model curriculum that would introduce high school students to ethnic studies. And mind you, it was Chicano studies, Asian American studies, American Indian studies, and African American studies. So all four in one course. So yeah, that's what we did. We were thrilled. We finished with a, a partial model framework. And then right after we finished, we were told, well, thank you for your work. Uh, your time is up. This now goes to the public. Uh, the minute went to the public, we started to get some uh, pretty serious backlash from some of the conservative elements in California who started to raise their voices and question 
the self-determination that we were able to implement in developing the course. And now you have a model curriculum that is what we call an all lives matter multicultural U.S. history course, which is not what was intended. Dr. Montaigne, it would be wonderful to hear. Why was this seen as such a threat and how did people react? What kinds of attacks have you seen? Oh my goodness. Well, I mean, there's been a series of attacks, right? If, if you look at the, the model curriculum, what, the way we started, and you actually go in and look at what has resulted. What the state of California, I can't think for them, I can only uh, make an assessment based on what I see, was attempting to do is satisfy everybody's voice. Now you don't do that in any other curriculum. You don't open up the math curriculum to people who have struggled in math and say, okay, well, so you don't get calculus, so let's go in and rewrite it, right? You don't let non-scientists come in and define what scientists is, and when you do, you get a pandemic, like we got. But that's what they did with ethnic studies. We got pushback from the Jewish Legislative Caucus for uh, references to um, Arab American studies and um, Palestine. Again, we had not completed our work. We were just starting um, this work. We got pushback. We got pushback from Bret Hart. We got pushback from the Wall Street Journal because we um, had the audacity to critique capitalism. We got pushback from uh, folks who said, uh, why so much talk about racism and um, discrimination? Uh, why not talk about, you know, the beauty? And, and in their assessment, the beauty was food fiesta and folklorico, right, of ethnic studies. We were, uh, we're still getting pushback. And, and there are people who are insinuating that we're being exclusive or non-inclusive, right? So the, the list goes on. But the reality is, is that what we say, what we continue to say is, ethnic studies is for everybody. When I teach a Chicano studies course, I invite every student at CSUN to come into my course. But I don't redesign the course by taking the focus again away from Chicano studies. Chicano studies is my content. Do I use pedagogical practices to make it understandable to students who are not Chicano? Absolutely. But I do not diminish the stories and the histories of our people. I do not make colonialism easy for them to um, understand. I do make it so that they empathize with it and they empathize with our people. What they have done to this by creating a let's satisfy everybody in this ethnic studies is essentially a watered-down um, ethnic studies. That's the voice of Dr. Teresa Montaño. She is a professor of Chicana, Chicano studies at Cal State Northridge, and she's talking to us about this long battle she has been fighting along with many, many others for not just ethnic studies in name, in terms of some sort of multicultural curriculum, but truly an ethnic studies that is critical and is an opportunity for people to better understand the many forces of patriarchy, imperialism, white supremacy, and colonialism that have shaped all of our lives. Dr. Montaño, I teach at um, SF State in the Latino Studies Department, and I feel like for me, the most beautiful feedback I've ever gotten is once I had a student tell me, your class helped me 
understand my family better and feel empathy instead of shame as to why we were living in poverty. Help me understand why we were here and the conditions we faced when we were here and the, the many strengths and power that we have in terms of community that can organize. You've taught for many years. You have been committed to this work. Share with me a story or, or anything that you would like for people to understand the power that this curriculum can truly have if people at a young age can have access to these stories and these, like you said, this way of seeing the world. Well, I, I mean, I think it goes without saying that our students have been, Chicano students, Latino students, have been marginalized in the educational system for, for hundreds of years, right? Many of our students don't see a purpose in going through school, right? They're, they're traumatized by the experiences in a K-12 education that fails to recognize who they are. When they take their first Chicano, and, and mind you, it isn't like, it's not magic, it's um, knowledge. And when you begin to tell people, it just didn't get this way, you know, the, the COVID situation and the impact that it has on communities of colors just didn't materialize overnight. It's hundreds of years of marginalization and oppression. And it isn't a, a sad story, you know, it is an oppressive story, but there's always the story of how we resist it and how we um, reached into our own cultural um, knowledge to be able to, um, to, to exist for 500 years. For many of our students, when they begin to see themselves in the curriculum, they begin to have a purpose, right? I myself became a teacher after taking my first Chicano Studies course because for me, teaching wasn't just about, you know, getting a career. Teaching meant that I could co-construct the knowledge of my people with my students, that I could give them hope. And that's what Chicano Studies does. That's what Ethnic Studies does. It gives you hope. It gives you a purpose. You begin to say to yourself, well, okay, now I understand why it is the way it is, but what can I do to change the situation? So for me, it was like, okay, now I understand why I live the experience that I did growing up in South Central Los Angeles. I understand the suffering that my father went through. I understand the trauma that he went through um, as a zoot suitor. So now what do I do to change the situation so that those after me don't have to feel it? And I think it, it you know, when we say ethnic cities saved our life, story, I have students who talk about alcoholism and then realize after their first ethnic studies course there's hope and become counselors and teachers and attorneys it opens the door to other people's knowledge it doesn't just open the door to understanding who you are as a people but i also recognize that i'm not in this alone that i can't change the social conditions of chicanos unless i'm committed to changing the social conditions of all marginalized communities and that we engage in this together. It's more than a curriculum. It is a movement. Dr. Teresa Montaño, you were talking to me about this long fight of united educators who have seen the power and value and have lived their lives to try to create more access and more spaces for 
young people to think about their own lives critically and have tools to address the inequities that they see. So at this moment in time, where are places that you can recommend? What can people do? If we have people listening and say, you know what, that class I took in community college or that class I took in high school or that class I took in college really did change my life or I didn't get to take that class and I truly wish I would have been able to and I want my grandkids or I want my kids to take that class. What can people do in this moment? There are several fronts that we're um, doing this work in ethnic studies, right? As a co-conspirator in ethnic studies, I think it is important for uh, folks to send letters to the um, school board association and to the CDE, the California Department of Education, and just share your personal story. What is the value of ethnic studies? We're asking people to take selfies, you know, something as simple as a selfie about what ethnic studies did to you or, you know, hashtag defend ethnic studies so that people will be able to see on an individual basis what ethnic studies meant to you. We are initiating on a local level because this is also a, a local fight. Many school districts have adopted ethnic studies, some have not. So go to your local school board and tell them that you want an ethnic studies course for graduating students. There's a bill uh, that is going to be introduced by uh, Senator Medina, uh, Assemblyman Medina, AB 101. Support that. Support it, but also really scrutinize it. And think about what does that bill need to do to remove in order to support us? And also, is there a commitment to fund ethnic studies programs? They don't just material overnight. And take a course. You know, don't, don't take our word for it. You can take an a ethnic studies course in a community college, in a CSU. Take a course and see for yourself what it does. I've had students of all races and nationalities thank me after they get out of the course. And stay in touch. You know, former um, students who are white who will email me and say, I want to teach ethnic studies. How can you help me? There are a lot of good people out there who want to see this happen. I would also go to the AROC website, the Arab Resource Organizing Committee website, and um, there's a list of things that they can do on that website as well. So, Dr. Montaño, this has been a long fight, and as you said, it's a coalition of educators across the spectrum from many different orientations, but united towards this commitment for ethnic studies. So you mentioned that school boards are a really integral place, and I understand that sometimes people could say, okay, yes, I'm going to push for maybe it's Asian Pacific Islander studies, or maybe I'm going to push for Chicano studies, or maybe I'm going to push for black studies. But this idea of really making it so there are courses where people are able to understand this way of breaking down the world they live in and think about the world they want to create is very rare. So right at this moment, you mentioned school board. So tell us more. What would that look like? If I'm someone that says, yes, this is essential, walk me through it. School boards are by nature very difficult to interact with and can be really overwhelming the processes with which they operate. Tell us, what could someone do? Well, one could and begin to draft a resolution, and we have several examples of resolutions that can go to your school board calling for the adoption of an ethnic studies course in your school district. You would draft that and bring that up, uh, work with one of your school board members to bring it up to the school board um, and pass a resolution that would call for your district's implementation of an ethnic studies course. That's the first thing. 
The second thing is once that course is adopted, mind you, there are a lot of people out there appropriating ethnic studies, calling themselves ethnic studies that are not truly ethnic studies. So once that course is adopted, then work with your local school district to make sure that the ethnic studies course they draft is authentically ethnic studies. Invite ethnic studies faculty from your community colleges, from the CSU, from the UC, to sit with your school board and classroom teachers. Classroom teachers are so critical in this, to begin to draft an ethnic studies curriculum that they can then roll out within their school district. There will be a new piece of legislation coming forth by Assemblyman Medina, AB 101, which will call for ethnic studies graduation requirement one more time. This is the third try. It's not a perfect piece of legislation yet. I would ask your listeners to really um, scrutinize it and see what they need to make sure that this actually happens. And then once the bill is presented, I would uh, ask you to send um, letters to and phone calls to the governor and ask him not to veto the ethnic studies requirement this time. And then finally, something really simple that you can do is take a selfie. And in the selfie, hold a sign up that says, I am ethnic studies or hashtag defend ethnic studies and post it on social media so that everyone can get to see how many of us are there that support ethnic studies. And then be in touch. If you need someone to um, speak um, at a meeting, um, if you need curriculum development, Julieta knows how to reach me. Uh, we have a network of over 50 educators in the Liberated Ethnic Studies Model Curriculum Consortium. We work with teachers to develop curriculum and we can work with you to also work with your school board. So this is something we're passionate about and so we're willing to work with anyone who is committed to ethnic studies. That's the voice of Dr. Montaño. She is a professor at, of Chicano Chicana Studies at Cal State Northridge. And we we're talking about this statewide fight for ethnic studies and for true ethnic studies. And I just want to underline this idea that ethnic studies is not something siloed, a separate class you walk in and out of. Ethnic studies should be the way we have our math classes run, the way our science classes should look the way we think about every course we engage in. So if you're a teacher, you say, well, I teach biology. What's the connection? There are a lot of ways could to rethink biology. Could, could I m mention one yes. more thing that I, I completely forgot, and I would be not a very good person uh, exemplifying solidarity if I didn't mention this. One of the things that the CD has done is it's, it's taken the Arab American Studies section and it's placed it into the appendix. And basically pitting one group against the other. We are engaged in, um, in, a, in a struggle to make sure that every part of what is currently ethnic studies is situated in its correct place. And so one thing they could also do is write to the, the California Department of Education and ask that Arab American studies be placed in its rightful location in the model curriculum. That is essential. So. Dr. Teresa Montaña, there are going to be people listening who say, you know what, ethnic studies is great. I've seen the research. It really does impact, especially those struggling the most academically. It has been something that we see studies even here from the Bay Area, where students who took one ethnic studies class who were not doing well academically ended up doing far better than students who did not take ethnic studies. So we see that research. But what if you are a student who is a white student who's doing very well academically, 
Why does ethnic studies matter? Who is ethnic studies for? Ethnic studies is for everyone. Ethnic studies is inclusive. Ethnic studies is about solidarity and it is about unity for every single person. We talk about every single person's experience, but we center for the very first time in the curriculum, the voices of people of color. One of the, the um, research findings in ethnic studies is that all students benefit, but white students benefit quite a bit because it helps all of us begin to negotiate racism, to have hard conversations, to uh, engage in critical projects to change society. So it is for everyone. I always say white students go undergo these um, changes in an ethnic studies course where sometimes they come in and they're not sure exactly, mm, I'm not sure I'm gonna be okay here. And I always say, you know, you go, I have a, a colleague who once said, there are stages that white students go through when they take ethnic studies, you know, guilt, uh, blame, and shame. And what ethnic studies does is it moves students from the guilt, shame, and blame to the solidarity, beginning with the curiosity, right? It opens up the eyes to white students to stories they didn't know. We don't know. They certainly don't know. And they get curious. And then they begin to engage in, in, in areas of solidarity and humility. And then all of us move forward to creating and co-constructing a better society. So yes, ethnic studies is for everybody. That was the voice of Dr. Teresa Montaño. She is a professor of Chicano Chicano Studies at Cal State Northridge, and she is a longtime advocate for ethnic studies. She's part of a powerful coalition of groups across the state that are fighting for not just ethnic studies in name, which is a critical, pedagogy that will transform the way people think and learn and see their world. So thank you so much, Dr. Montaño. We deeply appreciate your time and your commitment to this work. And we look forward to interviewing you again once all students in the state of California are able to take ethnic studies courses. Thank you. You've been listening to La Raza Chronicles, Crónicas de la Raza. If you'd like to stay up on our news, like us on Facebook, at La Rosa Chronicles on Facebook. If you want to hear this program or share it with a friend, you can go to soundcloud.com slash La Rosa Chronicles and share it. If you have any ideas for interviews we should be doing or would like to get involved with our collective, you can email us at La Rosa Chronicles at kpfa.org. Muchísimas gracias y buenas noches. <laughs>